Good morning, Grace. Turning your Bibles to the book of Esther. Esther lives uh, in between Job and Nehemiah. So if you find one of those, you can go right or left, depending on where you're at in your Bible. Today we begin our new series that I've entitled Reversals, the Gospel According to Esther. And I'm excited about this series because, one, when I told my wife Heather that we were doing this series, she said, great, that's my favorite series that you have ever done. Now, I've never preached through Esther. Fifteen years ago, while I was in seminary, I taught this in a Sunday school class to a group of junior and senior high school students, but I don't remember anything. And I don't have any of my notes from that time, so I feel this pressure now from my wife to really hit a home run. And now that I've told you about it, I feel that pressure as well. But I'm excited about our new series in the book of Esther. Here's one reason why. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we were just in the book of Hebrews where it was all about Jesus all the time. And we're now moving to a book in the Old Testament which doesn't even mention God's name once. And so I'm excited about that contrast The book of Esther, like the Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon, doesn't even mention God's name. Can you believe that? A book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God's name. And so the big question is this, what can we learn about God from a book that doesn't even mention his name? And the answer is, a lot In fact, as we approach the book of Esther, it is imperative that we listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, you know the story, Jesus appeared to two disciples as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, and what he said to them is very important for us as we look at the book of Esther. These two disciples were not connecting the dots in the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was supposed to suffer and die. And so what Jesus did on that walk to Emmaus is he gave them a lesson in hermeneutics, a lesson in how to study the Bible. Listen, I'll read it to you. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If we are going to understand the book of Esther, we must approach it the way that Jesus approached it. We must interpret the Bible the way Jesus did. And that is with a Christocentric hermeneutic. Meaning, we're gonna, what does it say about Jesus? How is it pointing us to Jesus? So I believe that Jesus walked these two disciples through the book of Esther as they walked on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walked with them through the Old Testament and showed them how all of it was pointing to him. And I believe that he showed them that the book of Esther was pointing to him. And so that has to be our approach as we look at this book. We don't approach the book of Esther seeking, seeking principles and stuff we must do and trying to get these how-to lists from this book. We must approach the book of Esther the way Jesus did and ask, what does it say to us about Jesus? How is it pointing us 
to our Savior? Those might seem like strange questions because God's name is not even mentioned in this book. But as we will see week after week, even though it seems like God is silent in this book, even though it seems like God is hiding in this book, what we'll see is that God is always very much involved in the lives of his people. God is always involved in your life, even if you can't see him. And that might be just what you need this Christmas season. Our big idea today just might be the Christmas present that your heart needs this year. Our big idea today is this. God is present even when he is most absent. That's the big idea of the book of Esther. God is present even when he is most absent. God is always working in your life even if you can't see him. Sometimes you can see what God's doing, how he's working in your life. And sometimes you have no idea. Sometimes you wonder if he's involved in your life. Sometimes you stress out. Sometimes you worry. Sometimes you wonder if he really cares about you. Sometimes you wonder if he's really listening to your prayers. Sometimes you wonder if he really sees what is happening in your life and the heartbreak that you are experiencing. And sometimes you wonder, is he really going to intervene? And honestly, that's what the Christian life is like a lot of the time, isn't it? A lot of the Christian life is about wondering what God is up to, wondering what he's doing. It's a lot about trusting God now when he seems hidden And then understanding him later, understanding what he was doing later. And if that bothers you, you'll be a miserable Christian. God is not in the habit of telling us everything that he is doing. The Christian life truly is a lot about trusting God now and then understanding him later. And that's a whole lot of what the book of Esther is about. So the book of Esther will remind us that even if God seems silent, even if he seems hidden, he's not. The book of Esther is one of the greatest illustrations in the Bible of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're like me, sometimes I don't know that. I have to ask, what are you doing, God? And I have to be reminded, oh yes, all things work for good. When you read Romans 8, 28, it should remind you of the book of Esther. And after this series, I hope it does. So today we're just going to get an overview of this book. I want to set the stage for you. I want to paint the backdrop so you can understand this story. So we're not going to get into the text too much today. This is just an introduction to the book of Esther. But let's start with a very quick summary of Esther. Some of you may have never even read Esther before. Some of you may be fuzzy on the details And so let me briefly walk you through it, and then we'll look more at the themes of the book, the historical setting, etc. 
Esther begins with the Persian king Ahasuerus. He throws this big party and then he wants to show how good looking his wife is, Queen Vashti, to all of his drunken friends. But Queen Vashti, like any smart woman, will have nothing to do with that. Queen Vashti doesn't want to be gawked at by a bunch of old drunk guys, so she refuses to show up when King Ahasuerus beckons her. But now, because she refuses, Ahasuerus is in a bind. Will he tolerate this insubordination by his wife? And so he gets bad counsel from a bunch of drunk guys. And they tell him to get on Facebook and tell the nation that Vashti is no longer queen. Their thinking is that if women hear what the the queen did to, or hear what the king did to his wife, then all the women in the land will get their act together and honor and respect their husbands. Male chauvinism at its best or worst. And so King Ahasuerus has a beauty pageant so he can select a new queen. And all of these beautiful unmarried women are brought in before the king, and he chooses Esther to be his new queen. And he chooses Esther because of what Esther 2.7 says about Esther. So let's look at Esther chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking of her cousin Mordecai, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Esther was a supermodel. But she was also an orphan who was being raised by her cousin Mordecai. But when she entered the beauty pageant, Esther did not reveal her Jewish identity. She didn't let anyone know that she was Jewish. But she was chosen to be the new queen because of her figure. In other words, she was smoking hot, and this is why the king chose her. Then... Her cousin Mordecai discovers a plot to kill the king, so he tells Esther, and she tells the king, and the two men who were planning to assassinate the king are killed, and then all of this is recorded in King Ahasuerus' books. Then a man named Haman is given a new job for the king, secretary of state or something like that, and he wants to be honored by all in his new position. But Mordecai, Esther's cousin who's raising her, he refuses to bow down to Haman. So Haman is triggered and he wants to murder Mordecai. But Haman doesn't just want to murder Mordecai. He wants to murder all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. So Haman tells the king that there are these people that need to experience genocide. And so the king passes a law that all the Jews in his kingdom are going to be exterminated on a certain date, a year later on the calendar, not knowing that his new beautiful wife Esther, the woman with the great figure who was lovely to look at, not knowing that she is a Jew. And so The king's new law that all Jews will be murdered starts to spread through social media and all the news outlets pick it up and then Mordecai hatches a plan. He tells Esther that she has to break royal protocol. She has to risk her life. She has to barge into the king's presence and tell him what this wicked man Haman has done. And Mordecai lets Esther know that just because she's the queen doesn't mean she's going to escape death. He says, all Jews will be killed on that day, including you. 
Meanwhile, Haman has been building these gallows because he wants to hang Mordecai on them. So Esther risks her life and she barges into the presence of King Ahasuerus and she asks him to come to a party that she's throwing in his honor. And she has a party, which she's also invited Haman to, the guy that wants to kill her cousin. And then at that party, she asks the king, will you come to one more party tomorrow? Let me tell you something about the Persians here. Let's take a break. These people like to party. In fact, there are 10 parties or banquets that are mentioned in the book of Esther. If you did anything back then, if you were a Persian, you threw a party. You buy a new car, you throw a party. Ladies, you get your nails did, you throw a party. Change your baby's diaper, you throw a party. The P in Persia stands for party. P-A-R-T-Y? Why not? That was the motto in Persia. So Esther throws a party for the king, scheduled for the next day, and she invites Haman to the party as well. And so the king responds with his RSVP, and then that night, the night before the next party, that is the turning point in the book of Esther. This is the hinge point in the book of Esther. And the turning point is a rather mundane and ordinary moment because that's how our God works. He works in and through some very mundane and ordinary ways in order to extend his kingdom in this world. Understand this, Grace. Ordinary events are often the catalyst for God working in your life. Very ordinary events mundane events are often the catalyst for God working in your life. Now let me show you from the book of Esther. Look at Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the night before the second party that Esther is throwing for the king. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So an ordinary case of insomnia for a pagan king becomes the catalyst for God working to save his people. That's how our God works. Of course, God can do the miraculous like splitting the Red Sea in half. He can cause the walls of Jericho to come crumbling down just because a group of people shout. He can open the eyes of the blind But he often just works in very ordinary and very mundane ways. Even the entrance of Jesus into our world. Though through a very miraculous pregnancy, is still accompanied by very ordinary players in a very ordinary setting in God's story. You have a pimple-faced teenage girl. You have a bunch of smelly animals in a barn-like birth room in a podunk backwoods town in Israel. 
all very ordinary things. Why? Because that's how our God rolls. God likes to show off through the very mundane and ordinary ways in this world. And that's what we see in Esther chapter 6. God uses an ordinary case of insomnia for this pagan king, and that becomes the catalyst for God working to save his people. And so Ahasuerus, the Persian king, has a bad case of insomnia. And what's a good cure for that? In the ancient Near East, if you can't sleep, what do you do? You bring out the royal records and you read them. That will make you sleepy. That will put you to sleep. You can't sleep, then read all of your business transactions and who bought and sold what and who went where and did what in your kingdom. You read thousands of pages of government work. That'll put you to sleep. What Ahasuerus is doing here in Esther 6 is the equivalent of watching C-SPAN in the middle of the night. Boring. You know what C-SPAN is? This channel, you can just watch the government do what they do. Boring. My grandfather used to watch C-SPAN during the day. And he chewed uh, tobacco, good money tobacco. And, and he had this large spit tune that he set between his, his feet as he sat there and watched C-SPAN all day. And us kids thought, this is so boring. Can we watch something else? How boring. That's what Ahasuerus is doing here in the middle of the night. He's just reading all of these government records. I love what the Jewish commentators say about this passage. The Jewish commentators say that God said this to an angel. Hey, they're about to kill my people. Get down there and wake that pagan king up. And so the king watches a few hours of C-SPAN. He reads the royal records and discovers that Mordecai uncovered this assassination plot. And so the king wants to reward Mordecai for saving his life. And just then, Haman, the guy who hates Mordecai, he walks in, and the king says, I want to honor a man for his service to the king. And Haman is so prideful, he thinks he's, he's talking about him. And so Haman comes up with this over-the-top ceremony, thinking he's going to receive the honor. And then the king says, great, that's a good idea. Now go and do that for Mordecai. Not knowing how much Haman hates Mordecai. Then the next day at the party, Esther reveals to the king that she is a Jew. And some rotten man came up with this plan to kill her people. And then Esther reveals that Haman, who was right there with them, right there with the king, Haman is the rotten man who came up with this plan to kill all the Jews. And so Ahasuerus the king leaves in anger, and then Haman begs for Esther to spare his life. But as he's begging, Esther is sitting on the couch, as he's begging, he accidentally falls down on top of Esther, who is sitting on the couch, and just then, King Ahasuerus walks back in, and he thinks Haman is attacking his wife. His wife who has the great figure and is lovely to look at. And he walks in and Haman is laying on top of her. And the king thinks, you're trying to assault my wife? And so Haman ends up being hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And Mordecai is honored and given a new position on the king's cabinet. But there's still a problem. The law to exterminate all Jewish people had already gone into effect and was to happen on a certain day. And so King Ahasuerus spreads word on social media to all of the Jews that they should take up arms and defend themselves on that day. 
and they did. If anyone tried to attack the Jews, the Jews successfully defended themselves. And so the Jews were saved. They did not experience genocide. Mordecai was honored and given power, and he started the festival of Purim to help commemorate what Esther did, and Esther remained queen, and all lived happily ever after. That's the book of Esther in a nutshell. And God's name is not even mentioned once. This whole story is actually pointing us to Jesus. And that's what we'll see as we walk through this book. And even in my quick summary of Esther, you may have realized this, that God is present even when he is most absent. And that's what we'll see in the book of Esther. God's name is not mentioned, and yet we see him working behind the scenes to bring about the salvation of his people. Now, in order to understand the book of Esther, we really have to go back to the book of Genesis. So turn to Genesis chapter 3. There are two passages in Genesis that give us the reason why God is doing what he is doing in Persia in the 480s B.C. There are two promises in the book of Genesis that make up the fabric of what God is doing behind the scenes in the book of Esther. One is the promise to Adam and Eve after they sinned, and the other is a promise to Abraham. So let me read them to you. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. After Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars call this the first gospel. God promised Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would come in order to crush the head of Satan, the serpent, the devil. And so what God is doing behind the scenes in the book of Esther is he is keeping his promise to Adam and Eve. He is preserving the godly line. He will not let the Jewish people in the book of Esther die. He is preserving the godly line so that his son, Jesus who is promised here in Genesis chapter 3, so that his son Jesus can come and redeem his elect people. You have to keep that in mind as you read the book of Esther. Also, turn to Genesis chapter 15, because there's another promise that forms the fabric of what God is doing behind the scenes in the book of Esther. It's a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 5. And he, Yahweh brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what God is doing behind the scenes in the book of Esther is keeping his promise to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as the stars in the heavens. And what Abraham couldn't see then, we celebrate now during Advent. The coming of the Redeemer. The coming of the Savior. The coming of Jesus. The book of Esther is proof that God keeps His promises. Our God makes and keeps 
promises. That's who he is. And his promises are not just for us. Understand this, Grace. Every promise of God involves your offspring. It involves your descendants. Every promise of God involves your children. His promises are for you and your children, Peter says in Acts 2.39. If they repent and believe, these things will be true for them. And so what God is doing behind the scenes in the book of Esther is keeping his promises. His promise to send a redeemer, one of Eve's descendants, and his promise that Abraham would have many descendants who trust in that redeemer. You have to keep these two promises in the back of your mind as you read the book of Esther. But here's what's so staggering about all that happens in the book of Esther. God's people are on the brink of extinction, and yet there's no mention of their God in this book. God's people are on the brink of extinction, and there's no mention of their God, Yahweh, in this book at all. There are no angelic interventions, no theophanies. God doesn't show up in any way to save his people. He he gives them no instructions through some prophet on how to avoid disaster or how to save themselves. But that's what makes the book of Esther an even greater story. God shows off by not showing up. God shows off. By not showing up at all. Now, I want to address some introductory matters here. uh, The background to Esther. And these will all be online. My entire sermon manuscript is always put online. So you don't have to write notes feverishly. All of this will be available. But let's talk about a few introductory matters. Number one, the author. We don't know who the author is. But what we do know is that he has crafted an incredible story here. And when I say story, I don't mean that these events did not happen because some people believe that. I believe the events in the book of Esther are real. They really happened. This is a true story. These people are real. This really happened. But the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, crafted an incredible story, meaning the way he arranges things is just masterful. And what we'll see next week, he's going to be poking fun and making fun of Ahasuerus just in the way that he describes him. So there's comedy and there's satire in this story. We'll talk more about the structure and the arrangement as we go along, especially when we get to chapter 6, which is the turning point of the story. And I'll show you then how incredible the structure of this story is. Let's talk about the date. These events take place between 483 and 473 B.C. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that the nation of Israel turned away from worshiping Yahweh. They turned away from worshiping the Lord. You can read about this sad tale in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. Eventually, the nation was split apart. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And eventually, they walked away so much from the Lord that he sent them into exile by the Babylonians. But then, Isaiah tells us that God raised up Cyrus, the king of the Persians. Now, Cyrus is an interesting name because in Hebrew, it's Koresh. You might know that name. 
David Koresh, the leader of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas in 1993. That's where he, he got his last name. He was reading this and he said, I want to be Koresh. I'm the one that is, God has raised up to save his people. And so that's where he gets his name from. Cyrus in, in Hebrew is Koresh. So God raises up Cyrus, the king of the Persians, to defeat the Babylonians. And this happens in 539 B.C. And then he lets the Israelites return to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. And this is what we saw when we looked at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah several years ago. In fact, the book of Esther fits somewhere in between chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. And so you have some Israelites, some Jews, when Cyrus said, you can go back to Jerusalem, you had some Jews who stayed in now what is now Persia, and they did not return to Jerusalem after the exile. Something that they had all wanted for 70 years. And this is very telling that some Jews remained in Persia and didn't return to Jerusalem. It's very telling about the spiritual condition of both Esther and Mordecai. Why did they not return to Jerusalem like a good Jewish person should? Why didn't Esther and Mordecai return to the promised land? They may not be as awesome as we think they are. More on this later. And so the events of Esther take place when the Persians are in control. King Ahasuerus, who's also called Xerxes I, he's the husband of Vashti and then Esther, he reigned from 486 to 465 BC. And the events of the book of Esther occur during his reign. Now, let's talk about a few of the themes of the book of Esther. Number one, the sovereignty of God. One of the major themes of the book of Esther is the sovereignty of God. Kings can make their laws, they can make their decrees, but God is there behind the scenes to act on behalf of his people. He is watching everything that everybody does everywhere. You can't read the book of Esther without coming away with a sense of God's providence. I love how the late theologian Augustus Hopkins Strong describes God's sovereignty. Providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. Isn't that good? God's attention concentrated everywhere. And you definitely see that in the events that happened in the book of Esther. Second theme is the quote-unquote hiddenness of God. As I've already mentioned, God's name, Yahweh, is not mentioned in Esther. In fact, there's no reference to God at all, not as Savior, not as Redeemer, not as Judge, not as Lord. And there's no allusion to any kind of miracle in the book of Esther. There's no allusion to any sort of divine intervention. There's no mention of prayer which is strange because at one point the Jews begin to fast, but there's no mention of prayer to Yahweh, no crying out to Yahweh for help. There's no mention of any other aspect of Israelite worship. There's no mention of the sacrifices. There's no mention of the dietary restrictions under the law, which Daniel brought up. There's no mention of the priests. There's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of Jerusalem, there's no mention even of the Torah, God's word, the first five books of the Old Testament. 
No mention of God's law, no mention of God's word by these Jews at all. In addition, there's no mention of Israel's call to come out of the nations and be separate. There's no mention of God's law which forbade any Jew to marry a foreigner. And yet that's exactly what we see in this book, which makes the supposed character of these characters very questionable. There's absolutely no call in the book of Esther for the people of God to live faithful lives that honor Yahweh in the middle of a secular society, which is very strange because that's what the nation of Israel was supposed to do. The Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem 50 years at this point in the book of Esther. You have to question why Mordecai and Esther had not returned home. It appears that the Jews living in Persia had forgotten their calling to separate from the world. Plus, you have Mordecai, who allows his cousin Esther that he's raising, to not only be taken, but then entered into a beauty pageant, and then to actually marry a pagan king. A pagan king who does not give one rip about the character of his wives. He's only interested in their figure, how they look. And so Mordecai should have known that Esther, in marrying the king of Persia, was off limits to God's law. In fact, he even commands Esther to hide rather than reveal her Jewish identity to the king. And so these people, Esther and Mordecai, are not as squeaky clean as we may have made them out to be. Or maybe children's Bibles have made them out to be. Trust me, you do not want your daughter to act like Esther. We'll talk about that more in chapter 2. All of this just goes to show us that God's people often find themselves not living as they should. We're just not as faithful as we think we are. We're just not as good as we think we are. In fact, we are quite fickle. We often find ourselves compromising in big or even little ways. But in spite of all this, God is still faithful. What we see in the book of Esther is God's people not living as they should, and yet God in his mercy still intervenes. So Esther may not be the example we're looking for. Let me say that again. Esther may not be the example we're looking for. And I'll just let that sink in for a moment. There's a better hero who should emerge as you read the book of Esther. His name is Jesus, and he is faithful to his people even when they are faithless. That's what the book of Esther is about. Jesus is faithful to his people even when they are faithless. And that's good news for sinners like us. I mean, think about it. There is someone who barged into the presence of a king to save people. His name is Jesus. And he barged into the presence of God like we saw in the book of Hebrews. 
and spill his blood on the heavenly altar so that sinners like you and I have free access to his throne of grace. God may seem hidden, and when it seems like he is, remember this grace, God is present even when he is most absent. The third theme that we'll see in the book of Esther is the theme of coincidences. This is also one of the major themes of Esther. The sheer number of coincidences is staggering. And when you get to the end of the book, you realize that these aren't coincidences at all. You realize that although God is hidden, he has been sovereignly orchestrating every detail in this book. I mean, it just so happens that Esther, out of all the women in the Persian Empire, that she is chosen to be a new queen. It just so happens that Mordecai is at the gate and overhears the plot to assassinate the king. It just so happens that Mordecai is never rewarded for this. It just so happens that Haman picked a day a year away on the calendar to wipe out the Jews, thus giving them ample time to prepare to fight. It just so happens that Esther finds favor when she barges into the king uninvited. It just so happens that the king gets a bad case of insomnia and reads the royal records. And it just so happens that he opens it up to the section that discusses Mordecai's actions in saving the king. And it just so happens that Haman showed up when the king wants to reward Mordecai. And it just so happens that the king comes back in just as Haman accidentally falls on top of Esther. All of these coincidences just point out that God is very much involved in this movie, even though he doesn't get any credit on IMDb. Fourth theme, the theme of reversals. And this is where I get the title to this series. There are many reversals in this story. The author uses a literary technique called parapatia, unless you're British and you say parapatia, which is the sudden or unexpected reversal of something. And from the beginning to the end of the book of Esther, it is loaded with these reversals. Queen Vashti's sudden downfall and Esther's meteoric rise to be queen. Mordecai rips his clothes off and covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, and then he's later clothed like a king. Esther starts off as an orphan. She ends up the queen of the most powerful nation in the world. Esther fears that she may perish if she rushes in to see the king unannounced, and yet she ends up finding favor instead. Haman is thinking he's going to be honored by the king, only to find out that the king's plan was to honor his arch nemesis, Mordecai. Haman's joy at being invited to a party of the king, which ends in his death. Haman planning to kill Mordecai on the gallows that he built, only ending up meeting his own demise on his own creation. And then the Jews expecting to be wiped out, only to rise victorious. They go from fasting and mourning to feasting and rejoicing. Esther is loaded with reversals. Fifth theme is the theme of concealment. We see Vashti at the very beginning concealing her body from the onlooking drunk gawkers gathered at the king's party. And we see Esther doing a lot of concealing too. The first time Esther is mentioned, she is called by her Hebrew name Hadassah. After this, 
Her Hebrew name, Hadassah, is hidden, and she only goes by her Persian name, Esther. In Hebrew, Hadassah means myrtle, while the Persian name, Esther, means star. And it's likely a reference to the Persian god, Ishtar. But guess what the Hebrew word for hiding is? Star. When God says that he will hide his face from Israel... If they turn away from him, it's the word star. Listen to Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18, where God says, If you turn away from me, I will hide my face from you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. The word here for hide is the Hebrew word star. And when this particular word here in Deuteronomy is read, it reads Esther. Esther. You can't make this stuff up. So Esther's name is even a clever wordplay revealing her role in the story. She hides or conceals her Jewish identity. And when she invites the king to a banquet, she hides and conceals her true intentions. Esther, as her name suggests, is one who hides. And so Esther does a lot of hiding and concealing in a book where God seems to be hiding too. But even though God hides his face for a season, he will not allow his people to be destroyed. He will not forsake his people, even if his people hide their true identity. Let me read that again. God will not forsake his people, even if his people hide their true identity. Let that sink in for a moment. Barry Webb says, how does the absence of God color the theme of deliverance in the book of Esther and contribute to its distinctive theology? It shows that God is present even when he is most absent. When there are no miracles, dreams, or visions, no charismatic leaders, no prophets to interpret what is happening, and not even any explicit God talk. And he is present as deliverer. Those whom he saved by signs and wonders at the Exodus, he continues to save through his hidden providential control of their history. His people are never at the mercy of blind fate or of malign powers whether human or supernatural. God is present even when he is most absent. You're going to hear me say that a lot over the next few months, and you might not need it now, but I suspect sometime in your life, and maybe for some of you right now, that you're going to need to hear it again. You will need to be comforted by those words, God is present even when he is most absent. And that is the good news according to Esther. Maybe right now you think, where is God in your life? He's not answering your prayers. 
You're begging, you're crying, you're saying, intervene, do something. Please intervene. You're crying out saying, God, show yourself. Give me a sign. Give me something. And you need to know right now, even though it feels like he is most absent Christian, you must understand that he is very much present in your life and he's working behind the scenes doing things that you have no idea he's doing. But you will one day. And when he reveals it to you, you'll fall on your face and worship him. That's the God that you serve. He is present even when he is most absent. Even though God had said Deuteronomy, even though God said in Deuteronomy that he would hide his face from his people if they forsook him and went after other gods, and even though Israel did just that, and even though... The Israelites in the book of Esther did just that. God did not hide away for good. God showed up in the person of Jesus. And that's what Advent is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. God came down. He became one of us in order to save us. God kept his promises. One of Eve's descendants did indeed come. And trust in him gets you included among the descendants of Abraham. Jesus came and crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. And he lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And he died the death that we all deserve because we're sinners. And God raised him from the dead. And he's coming again to reign forever on the new earth. And you can reign with him if you repent of your sins and place your trust in him. Whatever it is that you're going through today, God is with you. He is working. God is present even when he is most absent. May you believe that today. Let's pray. Father, we admit first that we many times play the role of Esther and Mordecai and these Jews that should have been living faithfully for you in the midst of a secular, godless society. And many times, Lord, we compromise in big and little ways. And we confess that because our hearts have been exposed and we say, forgive us. And we also confess that many times when we don't see you moving according to our timetable and according to our wishes and wants, we begin to doubt that you're there and we begin to doubt that you care. And so our hearts have been exposed. Forgive us of that. You are present even when you are most absent. May we believe that today because you showed up in the person of your son. May we believe that today by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory in our lives and for our joy. In Jesus' name.